Welcome back to Potida, everyone. I'm your host, Clara. And I'm your host, Jessica. We are completely thrilled today to have on Vincent Patterson, truly a force in the pop community. So we are just going to dive right in. We'll tell you a little bit about Vincent, and then we'll get to it. Vincent Patterson is a director and choreographer who has created some of the most iconic moments in pop culture over the course of his 30-year career. He worked extensively with superstars Madonna and Michael Jackson, and his work has been presented in every possible space and format, including film, theater, Broadway, concert tours, opera, music videos, television, and commercials. The works he created for Madonna include her Blonde Ambition tour, considered by many to be the greatest pop spectacle of all time, as well as her legendary Marie Antoinette Vogue performance for MTV, and the choreography for her video Express Yourself, and staging for her video Vogue. For Michael Jackson, with whom Vincent worked for over 15 years, he created The Bad Tour, as well as Smooth Criminal, Blood on the Dance Floor, and multiple other Jackson music videos and live performances. To name just a few of a truly exhaustive list, Vincent's other directorial and choreographic works include Berlin's first original production of the musical Cabaret, now the longest-running play in Berlin's history, the Lars von Trier's film Dancer in the Dark, the movie Hook for Steven Spielberg, and Cirque du Soleil's Viva Elvis in Las Vegas. Vincent, thank you again so much for making time to Skype with us all the way from L.A., and welcome to Pas de Deux. Thanks, Clara. Thanks, Jessica. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Excellent. To get started, just go ahead and give us a summary of your origin story, if you will, in your own words. How did you get started in dance, and what was your first big break as a choreographer and director? Well, in dance, you know, I danced like in high school and stuff like that, but I never really danced formally at all through my high school education or my college education. I was a director and actor. That was my major. So I was really involved in the theater. It wasn't until I lived, I grew up on the East Coast around Philadelphia. It wasn't until I moved to Tucson, Arizona after college and working as an actor in Philadelphia for a while that I stumbled upon a dance school that I passed every day and looked in the door and looked kind of interesting. They were taking doing a ballet class and I thought, oh, I never really exercise. Maybe this would be a good thing <laughs> for me to do. So I asked and the lady didn't have adult classes, but she said I could come in and take a ballet class with the girls that were uh, around kind of from 11 to 15 years old. So I thought, oh, well, what the heck? Nobody's going to be judgmental, so why not? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. And it was fun. You know, I did it and it was great. And because I'd been an actor, my approach was that I went to the library and I got books out like on Nureyev and I would look at famous uh, dancers and ballet pieces and I would pretend that I was going to be that character when I went into class. And it made it easier for me to understand how to put dance technique onto my body because I was 24 already at that point. Mm -hmm. So I had to do a lot of crazy things to get myself into shape fast. I walked around Tucson, Arizona with a broom handle under my, my arms in the back, uh, <laughs> under my elbows to pull my shoulders back. I, um, I had a backpack that I carried a 
big telephone book in and a Coke bottle that was filled with sand so that whenever I sat down anywhere, I sat on the telephone book to kind of make myself get a better second position. And mm-hmm. I would take off my shoes and roll my feet over the bottle so that I would try to develop an arch in my foot. Mm. But it was great. I, I loved it. And I started dancing with small companies in Tucson mostly because they needed men and mostly because I had a great stage presence because I had been an actor, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I did it. I studied for a couple of years there in Tucson and then I moved to Los Angeles and I had made a decision that I wasn't going to do anything else but my art. And if I had to take a subsidiary job that I was going to give up dancing. So I auditioned for everything I could for about nine months and I hadn't eaten in a couple of days. I got nothing and I hadn't eaten in a couple of days. And a friend took me to lunch and I saw that there was a sign and they were looking for waiters. And I thought, well, okay, I guess this is really a sign that <laughs> I need to get out of this business before I even start. So I went up to the woman and she told me, come back at six o'clock when the manager was there. I went back to take what I thought was my last dance class and got a call from a choreographer who said he was looking for one more guy to do a television show. Could he come and watch me in class? And I said, please, please, his name was Joe Bennett. Please, Joe, please come and watch me in class. And he did for about 20 minutes, pulled me out of class and said, you have a job if you want it. And that was my first job. It was a CBS special with Dick Van Dyke on it and a few other people, I'm sure. I don't remember that much right now. but. That was the beginning of my dance career, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And what type of dance was that, out of curiosity, that in that first job? It was kind of, I don't even know what you would call it. I guess jazz is the mm-hmm. best way to describe it, you know. It was in the early 80s, and yeah, I'd studied a lot of different techniques. I studied ballet, I studied gram, I studied flamenco. I kind of knew how to do I don't really call it ballroom dancing. I would call it social dancing because my father taught that. So I knew those steps, you know, but I, it was never a formal ballroom. I studied what was called, well, Afro-Cuban I studied. And there was not really contemporary at that time. Contemporary was something that was formed kind of in the 2000s. But mm-hmm. the classes that I took were a combination of modern and jazz and and a little bit of ballet. So the technique altogether really was the beginning of contemporary dance. You know? mm-hmm. And those were the dance genres that I studied. And at that point, after you had landed your first major break, what was the landscape like after that? Do you have to go to auditions or was it sort of a we've seen you in this and we would love to have you in this other production? What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> I wish it had been that easy. <laughs> well, at the time, there were no dance agents in Los Angeles or anywhere in the U.S. Actually, the whole concept didn't exist, dance agencies. So if you were a dancer, you got a, a job in a few different ways. Either you saw a sign posted someplace or word of mouth or after you had done a few jobs and if you were liked and if you did a good job then the choreographer would often call you and you wouldn't have to do auditions but predominantly at that point through the 80s it was about auditioning Mm. you know and on occasion not having to audition and just getting a nice call hey would you want to start work on monday yeah sure Mm. so 
that was kind of the landscape at the time. That's interesting. It sounds like there must be dance agents now in um, the world you work in, but we recently spoke to a guest who made a movie about Sergei Pulunin, big ballet dancer, and he, Sergei, is now engaging in efforts to kind of create that structure with agents for ballet dancers who don't really have oh. that right now. Yeah, so hopefully maybe it's spreading in some ways through the dance Wow. Program. Well, there's there was only one here first. Mm-hmm. A woman named Julie McDonald began the first dance agency in the country, actually. And then from there, other people started to jump on board. And I think now in L.A. alone, there are maybe five or six agencies that represent dancers and choreographers who also didn't have agents at the time. And they also have offices in New York, I know. So it's become sort of a a norm now in the industry for dancers to have an agent. And oftentimes, dancers are not even allowed to come to an audition unless their agency has been called and they've been Mm -hmm. submitted from the agency. So it's a whole turnaround that that happened over like 20 years, you know. Mm -hmm. Quickly. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So... We attended a Dance Films Association event. As you know, that's how we met you. (laughs) Um, Featuring you last fall. And we absolutely loved hearing all of the stories that you told throughout your experiences working with some of the most well-known and respected pop stars, including Michael Jackson, Madonna, Bjork, as well as some Hollywood types such as Robin Williams. I guess I just want to ask you to tell perhaps some of these stories again for our listeners. And I think it would be great to start with Michael Jackson. How did you meet Michael Jackson the first time? And what might be an interesting story that you would like to tell about him? Well, I met Michael Jackson at an audition, actually. I, hmm. I knew the choreographer for Beat It, Michael Peters. And he called me and said, would you come to this audition? We're looking for guys for Beat It. And I asked him if he knew what the video was about. And he said it was gangs. And so the interesting thing was that having been an actor, I came to the audition looking very much like what I wound up looking like in the video. I'm the knife fight Uh, guy in the video. And so I came in with like, a little beard, kind of a, a couple days growth. And <laughs> my hair was a little greasy. And I came in like kind of jeans and a jacket. And that's how I did the audition. And all the other guys in the room came in in stretch dance pants and sleeveless t-shirts and leg warmers at the time <laughs> and stuff like that. And so instantly I caught Michael Jackson's eye because I looked like the type And also Michael Jackson was someone who really liked, he never called them videos. They were always short films for him. Mm. So he loved the idea that someone actually came to an audition as a character and not just as a dancer, you know. And then the fortunate part was that I did really well in the audition and got the part of the gang leader and beat it. And that was kind of how I first met Michael Jackson. Yeah. Hmm. That's amazing. That's such an uh, iconic moment in pop music history. Truly. And if I remember correctly, it's a little fuzzy, but from the event, you told us about getting a call from Michael to choreograph Smooth Criminal. And it sounded like, I don't know, maybe you hadn't conversed on the phone before or you weren't sure it was him. Am I remembering that correctly? How did that come (laughs) about? (laughs) 
That was, yes. So I had danced in Beat It, and I was the assistant choreographer, and then I danced in Thriller. Mm-hmm. I was one of the zombies, and I was, again, the assistant choreographer for Michael oh. Peters. Okay. And, you know, Michael Jackson was very, very shy, and so I'm a gregarious guy, and I would mm-hmm. talk to him and get the dancers to come and talk to him so that he would feel comfortable because he was so shy. And mm-hmm. then, you're right, I you remember it pretty well, actually, I have to say, Clara, that I was sitting at home and the phone rang and this voice came on and said, hi, uh, is Vincent there? And I said, who's this? Uh, it's Michael Jackson. I said, get out. This is not Michael Jackson. (laughs) Really, it's Michael Jackson. I said, come on, this is not Michael Jackson. If you don't tell me who this is, I'm hanging up the phone, you know. And he said, no, really, it's me. It's Michael Jackson. And I said, I don't know what you can put on this show, but I said, (laughs) get the fuck out of here. This is not Michael Jackson. And he started giggling. But when he started giggling, I knew it was Michael Jackson. (laughs) Nobody can pull up. I said, oh my God, Michael, I'm so sorry. I said, fuck, you know. And he started laughing more, you know. So, yeah, that's what he called me and asked me if I could come and meet him at a recording studio that was around the corner from me in Hollywood. And I did. And we sat and listened to the music of Smooth Criminal. He only had Annie, Are You Okay? Annie, Are You Okay? Are You Okay? Annie were the only lyrics at the time. Oh, really? Yeah. And Hmm. he said, I want you to just listen to this music and let it talk to you. And I would like you to um, come up with an idea and choreograph it and direct it. So I, I did, I took it home and I listened to it for several days and I came up with an idea and called him back and told him what my idea was and he loved it. And so we went through the process. In the end, I wound up not being able to direct it because it became part of Moonwalker And so they brought in a director that was part of the director's guild. And I was not a part of the director's guild at that time. The director's name was Colin Chilvers, but he was a really great man. And I had put Smooth Criminal together while Michael was in the recording studio, finishing his CD, his album. And he had given me a, a video camera and I was shooting everything that I was creating and editing it together piece by piece. So when Colin came in, he kind of took what I had put together as a template for, sorry, I won't call it a video, the short film uh, <laughs> of Smooth Criminal, and that's how, we, that's how we laid it down. So, yeah. So you mentioned that Michael Jackson had sort of asked you to let the music guide you. And what was that collaborative process like with Michael Jackson and how did he influence your creative process? Well, just the statement of what he said about let the music talk to you and tell you what it wants to be. Those were kind of his exact words. That became something that throughout my choreographic career, that's what I've lived by. You know, Mm. I've never tried to take an idea and then impose it on a piece of music. Um, I will listen to the music a billion times until something is very clear in my head. And then I go into a studio and then I start to play with it. That was a huge influence that Michael gave me and something that has remained with me for many, many, many years. Creatively, how we worked and collaborated was that I would come up with an idea And I would sort of show, I would go into a studio, work for a while, then Michael would come in, I would show him what I had created, and he might have had a comment here and there, usually not. So when we did pieces, I would create everything that happened 
when he danced with other people. And then I would leave little pockets for him to do his own thing because I don't dance like Michael does. So uh, mm. like Michael did, I keep thinking of him as still with me, but mm. that was not my style. But I knew how to take that and blend it into all of the varieties of language of dance that I knew so that it would feel pretty seamless. So for Smooth Criminal, for instance, wow. like I would create from when he walks through the door and flips the coin and goes over in front of the bar and dances with those guys. And then he runs up onto the little bandstand and then he does his own thing. He, that was all his own stuff. Then when he steps off the bandstand and comes back in with the people, that's me again. So that's kind of how we would collaborate. And we would go into a studio together and play. And what he always used to say was, you got to feel it. You got to feel it. You know, <laughs> that's you like feel my the music, you know, and <laughs> so. Sometimes I would put an accent on a certain beat and he would say, oh, I don't feel it there. I, I feel it over here. So we would change an accent around, you know, and it was his music. So he knew it better than I did, you know, but that was how we collaborated. Oh, good. That's great. And it's funny because you've already started touching on some of the things involved in one of the questions we had for you. Uh, but I'll, I'll ask it because I think it's an interesting opportunity to expand on what you started to say there. So we're curious if you create the style for the people for whom you're choreographing and maybe it's different in different instances or if you really try to create movement based on your perception of their existing style like Michael Jackson had a style Madonna has a style so I guess what's your process to kind of strike the balance between what they're going for and what you might bring to the table well I try to morph myself into that personality you know, mm. so that even though I might not be able to do the moonwalk as as incredibly as Michael did or move mm -hmm. my body in the same exact way that Michael did, I still kind of feel like I step into the shell of that person and get a sense of what that feels like. And then I begin to create movement from there. So whether it's Bjork in Dancer in the Dark, who kind of, I always said that she sort of moved like an Icelandic Teletubby, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of robotic and, and adorable, you know. Um, I, I, I would kind of get into her space in my head and go into the studio and pretend I was Bjork, you know. Uh, yeah. Same thing with Madonna, you know. I would, I would pretend like my body was a more sensual female body and try to create movement that lent itself to her physicality because ultimately especially when you're dealing with major celebrities they are what's most important so I don't do something that's so technically difficult that I know they'll never get it like perhaps a, a dancer who's trained for 25 years or something would do I have ideas that are very solid and I'll go in and I'll teach it to whomever I'm working with and if it doesn't look good on them then I'll modify it till it looks great on them because they're the ones that are going to be in front of the camera. They are the ones that the world is going to see, not me, you know? And, uh, so though I, I sometimes feel like I'm a sculptor and the dancers or these personalities are my clay. I have to realize that sometimes if I would like to work in marble, I don't always have marble. I might mm. have, terracotta or something else, you know, mm. just as beautiful by the end result, 
but not what I necessarily expected when I first began. So I modify my work to fit that person. That's great. That's so fascinating. It sounds like your basis in acting has come in it has yeah. come into play in many ways. <laughs> oh, no, listen, I am constantly telling dancers, go take some acting classes because, mm-hmm. you know, anytime you're going to perform, whether it's for the camera or on stage or in a rock concert or whatever, you're a performer. You know, you really are a performer. And to me, I, you're bringing some sort of story and you're trying to connect with your audience somehow. And if you can somehow personify through your acting what you're trying to express through the language of dance pulling those two things together just makes the experience all the more better for both the person performing and the person watching you know then you don't have to just be a dance aficionado if you're sitting in the audience but if there's something that feels like it's deeper you kind of get something that feels like you're connected to it and Mm -hmm. that's very important for me You know, not just to exhibit something for Mm -hmm. presentation, but to create something that moves people in some way. Absolutely. I agree 100 percent. A lot of people we talk to come from a different perspective because, you know, in the ballet world or the modern world, there's a lot of abstraction. But I'm partial to kind of story and character and Well, the truth is, you know, I think most of those people have just never had the experience of the acting situation because Mm -hmm. even in abstract work, there's no reason why things have to be abstract. You know, when things are too abstract, we don't often understand what they're about. So what's Mm -hmm. the point? You know, it's kind of (laughs) dance masturbation in a way. (laughs) No, really. I mean, if you can put something, if the performer can put something tangible at least emotionally tangible into their performance, then we as an audience can absorb that and relate to that rather than trying to figure out, "Mm, what the heck is that about? I don't quite get it. Well, we don't always have to get it, but we do have to feel, as Michael said, feel it. We have to feel it, you know? Yeah. I really like that. Connect to something deeper, even when you're presenting abstraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you have any memories of Michael Jackson that you would like to share that you're partial to or anything that comments on his character in memory? Well, I mean, you know, I've just I've written a book. It, it hasn't been published yet, but, you know, I, several chapters are dedicated to Michael. And, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I could talk all about the work, but that would be days and days we'd be here speaking. But I guess I could would just like to let everybody who's listening know about this man and what an incredible person he was beyond just being a great artist. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I worked with him for 15, 16 years and very intimately. And, you know, he was one of the very few, if only at times, famous, famous person who never said an unkind word to anybody, never raised his voice, never was mean was always very positive. And even if he didn't like something that was presented to him, whether it was by a director or me or a costume person or a set designer, whatever it might be, he always approached his criticism with kindness. You know, he would say like, well, that's a really good idea, but I was thinking maybe we could try something like this. You know, Mm -hmm. he would never say, oh, I hate that or, Mm -hmm. or you're fired. 
you know. It would always be with a very gentle and kind, loving spirit and heart. And this was the man that I knew. He was always like that, you know, kind and and we would laugh a lot. I mean, we had mm -hmm. so much fun together. So it wasn't like we worked like maniacs, just working, working, working. We would be very focused in work and then we would like laugh and have a great time. And mm -hmm. I remember when we were doing Thriller, for instance, you know, it was Michael Peters and Michael Jackson and me in the room when we were putting the movement together and Michael Peters was putting the movement together. And I remember one time Michael Jackson said, oh, let's just let's just stop dancing and let's just go up to the mirror real close. So all three of us put our heads together and make scary faces and see if we can scare each other. You know, so here we are in a room in a dance studio with our faces like crammed together, stuck against the mirror, like making like. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is who he was, you know, he was. He was a sweetheart. He was yeah. really, really a sweetheart. And that was, besides being an incredible artist, he was just mm -hmm. a great man, That's really great. great man. Great. Thank you for that story. Yeah, it's so, uh, it's so good to hear that perspective. And an artist, the inside perspective that most of us never yeah, get, to really. see, get to hear. You mentioned your book, and we definitely wanted to spend some time talking about it. It's so exciting that you have a book coming out. And I think you have so much to say that everyone in the dance world would just you know, we'll just be clamoring to read. So anyone in all worlds, <laughs> all worlds, yes, <laughs> right. And um, I hope. yeah, mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about uh, the book. Maybe a preview of coming attractions, the structure, the content. What can people look forward to? Well, there was a documentary that was done about me by a, a Swedish production company, and after that, a writer came up to me and said, "I really think you need to write an autobiography." And so I said, "Well, would you like to come on board and kind of?" help me a little bit because I'm not really a writer. And hmm. uh, so her name is Amy Tofty and she's been great. You know, she's been kind of my, my right hand and I'll talk to her about my stories and then she'll type them out and kind of put them in a more sequential order. Hmm. And then I'll go back and really, really write and fill in everything. And I, I talk about everything starting from my personal life and growing up and how I got into this business. And, and I dedicate chapters not only to specific situations, whether they be Michael Jackson or Madonna or talking about creating a hook or talk about creating Evita or talk about creating Dancer in the Dark and the experiences. And not only what I experienced as a, a creator, but what I experienced from the people and the cultures that I was surrounded by. And also in the book, I talk about the fact that choreographers have no union and how important it is for choreographers to have a union and to kind of open people's eyes to that, especially people that might read the book and love dance so much and are totally unaware that choreographers are the only people that outside of the Broadway arena have no, no ownership of their work. I don't own anything I ever created. It's not mine. It's I'm hired as what's called a work for hire, which means that that person then owns everything I create. Wow. So in a way, it's like all of my babies have been adopted by somebody else and I can never get them back. You know, mm. I'm not even legally allowed to put on a show with my work, you know, because it doesn't belong to me. 
So the book covers all of that stuff. And at the moment, there's a working title, which I'm not so sure is going to stay there. But my co-writer came up with this title and I said, all right, we can keep it for a while. It's called The Boy from Beat It Grows Up. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I like it. So we have an agent and he's now looking for publishers and we're hoping to find one soon. And there's so many people that keep asking me, when is the book coming out? When is the book coming Mm -hmm. out? I hope it comes out soon. I'd, I'd really like to share a lot of these stories with people. And I think it's a fun read. I mean, we were just blown away by the reading that you gave a few months ago at the Dance Films Association event. The stories were so personal, touching, yet had the right amount of humor that you could really just get to know the artists that you're talking about. But I, I can't see myself putting the book down. I really can't wait until it comes out. Uh Oh, thank you so much, Jess. Um, Yeah, I'm excited for it. And I'm excited to share these stories. And, you know, I've done a few of those evenings like I did in New York that you guys came to. And it's always been very positive response. And that's what people have said. I talk about a lot of these celebrities, but not from kind of a sensational perspective. I just try to tell the truth about what the creative experience is like with working with them. And this is always enlightening for people because they hear more the gossip end of stuff. They don't really hear about the honest professional way that that these artists became who they who they are, you know, that process. And that's kind of what I try to talk about in the book, who they really are as as people and and as artists and 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 how they find their voice and how we work together to shape a voice to mm. put out into the world. And it's really fun. I, I like doing it. I like telling stories and I like sharing these. And so I'm glad that you got that. And for me, life is always about laughter. You you have to be able to laugh. If you can't laugh, get out. (laughs) Work and work and work. And all of that's important, but you need to have a little laughter too. Yes. Keep a perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I love it because I definitely got that perspective from the reading. It was not sensationalized like a tabloid. And yet you did touch on sort of the quirks of the characters that you've worked with. Everybody's quirky. And if if you're a star, I'm sure even the more so. And so it seemed like a very honest, but like you were saying about Michael Jackson and his approach, like a very positive, um, yet funny presentation. So I'm sure everyone is really excited to read the book. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) To kind of switch gears, we have a few other questions about random things. So we're curious if you have to work closely with costume set and lighting designers in addition to the dance artists uh, that you work with when creating work, and to what extent you're involved in the concept in addition to kind of strictly the choreography, and maybe this varies from project to project too. Well, it always varies from project to project because my position varies from project to project. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm hired as a choreographer. Not so much anymore. I'm usually always directing. But in the past, throughout most of my career, if I'm hired as a choreographer, then I work with a director. And part of what I have to do is fulfill the director's images, the things that he sees or she sees in their heads. I have to then take the dance language and make it fit their vision. So part of that as a choreographer sometimes involves having the freedom to talk to the costume designers specifically, also to the artists and those people that work with them making the music. Because for instance, in making a short film or a music video, almost everyone I've ever done 
the music in the video is not exactly the same as what's on the CD. We, oh. ex we, we usually put an extended dance break in there somewhere. So whether I'm working with Bjork on Dancer in the Dark or Madonna on a project or Michael Jackson on a project, I mean, Smooth Criminal winds up being uh, the video that the short film, I think, is about 10 minutes long, actually. Mm -hmm. And the real song is only four minutes long. So mm -hmm. we put all that extra music in there. Now, if I'm working as the director, then I'm even more involved because I'm creating the total concept. I'm creating the ideas for the sets. And then I have a set designer do it. I'm creating ideas for the costumes and then the costume designer will fulfill my wishes. I also then specifically have to work with the lighting designers and, and everybody on the whole team, you know, you're the head of the team as the director. Mm -hmm. So it varies from project to project, but that's the thing about choreography is, and choreographers is oftentimes, you know, and it's become sort of a joke, but you get a film script, for instance, it says, and now they dance. <laughs> and that's it, you know. Often it doesn't even have music. And you have to, like, when mm -hmm. I did The Birdcage with Mike Nichols, so cool. they did, he didn't even have music. So he said, why don't you find somebody and come up with the music for the, show, for the movie, you know, for all the scenes in the club. So I did that as the choreographer. But the choreographer is involved in so many things. They can be involved with the costume designer. They can be involved with the set designer. They basically become a writer because you take the line that says, and now they dance, and you have to then create the next four or five minutes out of your head. Nobody's written that. I've written that. Or the other, another choreographer has written that, you know? Yeah. And then in working and putting the piece together, you actually wind up directing the dancers and directing whoever is in that piece. So as a choreographer, if I hand that over now to the director, he has a pretty much finished product. He may ask me to do a little changing here and there, but I've now worked with costumes, I've worked with set, I've worked with the music people, I've directed the piece, and I've written the piece, and I've choreographed the piece. So a choreographer does all of those things, all of those things. And that's really why I feel that the choreographic industry has been so overlooked and, and treated as an underdog, you know. Mm -hmm. People love the result, but they don't realize that there's no representation and there's no unions and protection for us, you know. Wow. So. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, especially with set, the set design, uh, even in Smooth Criminal, I think there are moments when they, they go upstairs and they dance in a balcony yeah. and different things. So you really have to collaborate with all those people and uh, you're adding to the story depending on where they go, which... Absolutely. And when that space was first designed, it was only the first floor. And Michael said, what do you want in there? And I said, well, you know, I'd mm -hmm. like to have a bar. I'd like to have a bandstand. I'd like to have maybe another room. And then that's all we had. And then when I started to t shoot what I had done and take it and shown him at his home, he said, well, don't you think maybe you want a second floor? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll take a second floor. So <laughs> then, then the guys came in and they built me a second floor. So, mm -hmm. and then we're up on the second floor. And I, so I said to them, well, it would be great if I had some sort of staircase that kind of dropped down so that I could just lower it and have Michael come down that way. <laughs> so yeah, I was helping design the sets in a way. Wow. You know, you, you really get intricately involved you know, as a choreographer, more so than I think any of the other people on the set, except for the director. Yeah, it makes sense. It lends itself to experience in being a director. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
I love hearing how, about the process, how it all unfolds and kind of different elements come into play and influence each other at different times. I know people just see the end result and, and if they have no experience of being on a set, they have no idea the amount of work that goes into everything that we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It all looks so easy when it's finished. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so because you've worked in so many various mediums, you've choreographed for music videos, full-length films, concerts, theater, opera, as well as Cirque du Soleil. Do you have a preference right now for your favorite? Um, well, I'm doing less and less choreography and I'm doing more and more directing. That was my first love. As I told you at the beginning, you know, I started as a director. That's what I studied was directing, but the acting Mm. was my minor. I never expected to get into the dance world. I had no idea this was going to be part of my life. I guess it was just something that was supposed to happen. And, and I certainly have loved being involved in the dance world and, and being a choreographer. It's been very, very exciting and challenging and rewarding. But these days I'm kind of really doing more just directing and able to bring in some of my good friends that are choreographers and, and letting them do all that work. And I just <laughs> get to sit back and watch them sweat. But, <laughs> uh, but no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about directing my first feature film. Um, wow. I've been talking to a writer and a producer and, you know, I usually have always said that the way I decide if I'm going to do a project is if it fascinates me, if it scares me to death, and if I think that I'm going to be able to contribute something and learn something. Those are the four things. Oh, and, and maybe make a little money on the side would be nice. <laughs> I can help. So now I'm involved in, I feel like I'm in the middle of, you know, in a cartoon when you're standing there and you sort of see like a, a tornado around somebody and all these things are flying all around them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's how I feel right now because there's a project about Maria Callas for television that they're waiting for the funding for. They've asked me if I would direct the first of a mini series for that. Okay. Um, I'm meeting with these people about directing this music. It's a film. It's a very exciting film. I'm talking with a guy who was in a band called Savage Garden, who is writing a musical and wants me to direct it. So I'm working with him, with Darren Hayes. I'm also working with two companies in Europe about directing a musical in Belgium and directing a musical in London. And I've been asked to maybe go and teach two master classes in dance in Russia. I've also been asked if I would create like an hour program for a big expo that's going to happen in Kazakhstan in August. I'm also going to go to uh, Catawba College in the end of August and spend a day there, kind of in what you participated in in, in New York. I'll do that, and I'll also teach a three-hour master class. And I'm I, I try to do at least one sort of one sort of event every year, every two years where I feel like I can give something back. And so this year I'm going to direct an event that's for transplant patients. Um, There's a friend of mine and she actually had a heart put in. She died on the table and luckily a heart had just come. Someone had just donated their heart just before they passed away. And she died. And right after that, a heart was put into her body and she's alive. She was a dancer. And so she started a foundation that she collects money for transplant patients who have to move from someplace else and come to LA and wait for, sadly, it sounds horrible, but it's very positive for someone to die and donate 
their organs. So insurance companies pay for the actual medical process, procedure, but they don't pay for housing or food or anything like that. So that's what her foundation does. So she asked me if I would direct an event for her this September, which I will. And it's for big donors to provide money for her foundation to be able to support these transplant patients that are coming out to L.A. and need to have housing and need to have food and stuff like this while they're awaiting a possible transplant. So those are all the crazy things that are circling around me right now. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fun because they all fascinate me and I don't know which one is going to land Mm -hmm. first or which one will land or which ones won't land. So yeah, yeah, I just, I I feel like, I don't know, like I'm waiting for Christmas or something, you know, there's all these, (laughs) all these packages are under the tree and I'm waiting to see which one has my name on it, you know? And then knowing life, they'll all come at once. (laughs) Let's hope not. (laughs) But that is so true, you know. (laughs) What's the, uh, if you're allowed to tell us anything about it, the feature film you might direct, that's such an exciting new step. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, you know, it has very little movement in it at all. It's basically, it's kind of dark, but it has a beautiful redemptive ending. It's about a woman in her 20s, and she's a progressive guitarist. It's kind of a jazz rock guitarist prodigy, but she's an alcoholic, and her father was an alcoholic. Her her grandfather was an alcoholic, and they were all major guitar players. And it's kind of, that's what it's about. It's about her life and, and someone who's older and falls in love with her and tries to get her into detox. And she doesn't believe that she can be creative if she's not drunk. You know, mm-hmm. this is the problem mm-hmm. with alcoholism. Yeah. And so that's what the story is about. It's pretty dark, but it has this beautiful redemptive ending. So it's a very powerful little film. It's just a small film, but yeah, there's some really cool names that might be attached. I, I really can't say who they are right now, but some great actors and a very interesting person writing the music. So they've offered it to me. I just have to decide if I want to do it. And it's only because my fear factor is so high. I've never directed a feature yet. And I just get scared. And I always get insecure. I It's funny, you know, people think, oh my gosh, you've done everything in the world and how could you be nervous about anything? (laughs) I'm always nervous. I always think I'm never going to have a new thought in my head. I always think, you know, I'm not going to be inspired or I'm going to get on the set and people are going to come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, "Uh, excuse me, sir, we're so sorry. We got the wrong Vincent Patterson. (laughs) 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 Right now I'm kind of living with those fears Mm -hmm. and I'm as I'm going through the script and I just did seven pages of notes on the script and I have a meeting on Wednesday and hmm. I have to make a decision to say yes or no. I kind of have a feeling I'm going to say yes, but yeah. my palms are sweating right now, even as I'm talking about it because <laughs> yeah. I'm nervous. So. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, not necessarily my place, but if I might offer some encouragement, I make independent films as a producer and very small scale, but I've found there are two types of directors in that world, at least. There's like the camera focused ones and the kind of the actor focused ones. And it seems like you have, you know, and you can kind of be one or the other. You don't have to be both. It seems like you have a really good way of working with people. And like you said, you helped Michael Jackson overcome being shy and talk to people on set. I mean, I feel like that's enough to get you there. If you already have seven pages of notes and you know how to work with the actors, like, I would say you're set. But that's my two cents. Well, well, that makes me feel better, Clara. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So we talked a lot about 
Michael Jackson. We also understand that you also worked with Madonna quite a bit, as Clara mentioned in the bio. How did you meet Madonna and how did you start working with her? I had been working with a commercial director named Joe Pitka. He directed The Way You Make Me Feel uh, from Michael Jackson. <gasps> and that was that was how I met him. And he was then going to direct a Pepsi commercial for Madonna. It was a two-minute Pepsi commercial, and the music was like a prayer. And he called me up and said, listen, Madonna is going to do this thing, and she doesn't want to do any dancing, and she doesn't want to do any singing, but will you come down to the set and just be here in case, because I have a feeling we're going to need you. And I mm -hmm. said, okay, sure, Joe. So I went down, and I'm standing with him and Madonna and her entourage come around the corner and Joe says, oh, Madonna, I want to introduce you to Vincent Patterson. He's a wonderful choreographer. He works with Michael Jackson. Madonna says, I don't need a fucking choreographer and walks away. <laughs> and I wound up chasing my face around the studio floor, you know, here face, here face, come on back, come on back. But um, then, then what happened about an hour after they were trying to get one shot where the camera was coming up on a crane and she was supposed to do a turn and wind up landing front just as the camera got at a certain point. And they were having a lot of problem coordinating that. So I went to Joe and I said, I can make this happen. And he said, well, do it, do it, because everybody was getting very uptight. So I went to the camera and crane operator and I told them that I was going to do specific counts and that if they, I'll just make this up now, but if they got the camera to the end point by four, that I would get Madonna to be sure she turned and faced front by four. So I went over and then talked to Madonna and I was very humble and very nervous. And I said, Madonna, um, I'm not choreographing anything, but I know I can fix this for you and you can go home and rather than do 25,000 takes of this. Well, what do I have to do? I said, well, all you have to do is I'm going to give numbers. And if you wind up facing front on four, then the camera will be there and the shot will be taken and you'll be able to go. So she did it and it worked and mm. she got to go home. So Joe said, will you come back tomorrow? And I said, <laughs> okay. Well, I came back the next day and, and he had hired about maybe about 15, I guess, teens, young teens. And they were, I was just showing them this movement of kind of a loose, loose thing of dancing down a big street and they're all watching me and I see them slowly stop moving and they're looking past me and I didn't know what was going on and I turned around and Madonna was standing there with her hair in curlers and a big pink robe and kind of bunny slippers or fuzzy slippers and she says what are you doing and I said I'm not choreographing anything for you I promise I promise I'm just this is in the background and she goes no, I, I like it. Let me get changed and let me learn what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So she came out and she learned what I was doing. And then she was very open for me doing the rest of the commercial. And we got along great. And she saw that I was really just there to try to make her look as good as she could be, you know. Mm -hmm. And that was how we first met. And then she asked me to do her video Express Yourself. I did that. And then she said that she was doing a tour that she wanted me to choreograph and direct. and. And I said, I would love to do it. But then I heard the dancers were being hired and I thought, this is really weird. So my agents called her manager and it turned out that she had hired somebody else. And she had this person working with herself and the dancers for about 
four weeks, I think, and nothing had been done. This was the mm-hmm. Blonde Ambition Tour, and nothing mm-hmm. had been finished in four weeks. And she frantically called me at my home one night and said, I made a huge mistake, you know, I, I really hired the wrong person for this project, and would you come in and do it, and I, you know, I really need you, and you can make it happen, and blah, 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 and so agents talked to managers, and all of that stuff got dealt with, contracts and everything, and then I went in and did the Blonde Ambition Tour, and wow. and th- that was a fantastic project, that was just a fantastic project, and we worked together really interestingly, because I came in so late, I only had something like 20 days to do 17 pieces. Oh uh, I had to totally start from scratch. There was nothing done. And so I would go to bed at night. I would put the song on in my headphones and I would play it all night long. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd have these really strong images of what I was going to do with that piece. I would go down the studio, which was right down the street. And I would put it on the dancers. They would learn it. Madonna would come in. She would learn it. We'd try to do as clean it as much as we could that day. Next day, review that, move on to piece number two. Wow. That's how crazy it was. Uh-huh. Uh, then we had like a week and a half, I think, at the Disney Studios, putting it together on the stage before we took it to Japan. But mm. we didn't have a lot of time to collaborate together because it was such a frantic schedule. And she had these dates lined up and they couldn't be changed. So we just had to get a show up. One fun little story that I'll talk about, which was a way that we collaborated together. She had wanted to do the song Like a Virgin, kind of like a really dark, heavy rock and roll piece, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was interesting. I liked it. But I had been listening to a Middle Eastern singer who's now passed away, but her name was Ofer Haza. And she was Yemenite. And it was right at a time when world music was beginning to take off. Brian Eno had already introduced world music. And some of Ofer Haza's music was being picked up and played by DJs and given a dance beat. And it was like this fabulous Middle Eastern sound with this funky rhythms underneath. It was really great. So I asked Madonna, had she ever heard of Ofer Haza? And she said, no. So I gave her the CD and I said, listen to this one song. And she came back the next day and she said, oh my gosh, I really like it. And I said, well, that's what I want to do with Like a Virgin. I want to put you on this big bed. I want to have these two guys standing at the top. I want them to be kind of weird, abstract eunuchs. <laughs> kind of like tree limbs at the end of their arms. And this was way before Julie Tamer did it in her movie, her Shakespeare movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was my plan. So she brought that same day a little paper bag. And when we got to that piece, she said, look what I found. And she pulled out these cone bras that Gautier had made for her. And I went, oh my God, forget those tree limbs. We're going for the bras, you know. (laughs) uh, She had one pair and then Gautier made two more pairs. So the two guys put the cone bras on and she wore cone bras. And that's how that whole piece happened. But that was kind of the way that we would collaborate. You know, we had so little time to do it that if I threw out an idea, she would throw out an idea. Or if she had a thought, I would jump on it and we would just make it happen that fast. You wow. Know? That's awesome. And it but was we did a couple other projects together that were really fun. I, I choreographed the movie Evita for her. Mm-hmm. I also choreographed a piece that she did on the Academy Awards, a solo piece where she sang uh, Sooner or Later from Dick mm-hmm. Tracy. So 
we, we, we've done some fun things together. Yeah, that's great. And what a great story for such an iconic tour that really defined her image during that time period. Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't, they don't remember like the early days of Michael or the early days of Madonna, you know, but mm. really before the Blonde Ambition Tour, there were several female pop stars that were kind of all neck and neck, you know, there was like Janet Jackson, there was Madonna, mm. there was Paula Abdul, there right. was even Sade, you know, and mm. they, nobody really knew who was going to kind of pull ahead. And then the Blonde Ambition Tour happened. And once Madonna had that hair with that long white ponytail, I mean, that like catapulted the whole image of her just dead, just in that image alone with that long white ponytail, it catapulted her into the stratosphere and wow. she became the queen of pop. The queen. I didn't yeah. realize that tour was really what made such a difference, but that makes a oh, lot yeah. of sense. Well, not only with her, but I'm really proud of both of us because prior to that tour, there were some tours that were semi-theatrical, some of Bowie's tours, mm -hmm. uh, The Stones, Peter Gabriel, a little bit. But it was really the Blonde Ambition Tour that changed the face of pop tours. I mean, we were the first to ever inc incorporate anything that was theatrical, anything that sort of told some sort of story that had something you could follow, moments where you were emotionally pulled into the show as opposed to just sitting there and having the performer sing to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And after that, everybody started to make pop tours look like our tour. So wow. it was really the Blonde Ambition Tour that hatched that whole entire concept of what pop tours have become. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because it seems like there's this through line where it's interesting. You say you started as a director or you studied directing and kind of wanted to pursue that because with Michael Jackson, you said that he called his music videos short films. And really, yeah. I can see where they they were sort of new in that genre too. And then yeah. Madonna created this concert that wasn't just singing with visuals behind it. It was like short scenes. So even as a choreographer, it seems like your through line was to create these narratives and like kind of right. keep pushing the people you were working with, or I guess you just were part of projects that were pushing the lines into a more narrative space. So it's really, well, it's really cool. You know, thank you. It was very fortunate to kind of begin my choreography career with the two of them because, you know, they were really the biggest in the world. And they both mm. said to me, all they wanted was for me to create something that was incredible and something that the world had never seen before. Mm. So as an artist, I mean, that's what you want to hear, you know, and especially when you're working with people that can just, you know, you come up with an idea and you don't hear, oh, I don't know if we can afford that. You know, yeah. it was like. Any idea I came up with, they were like, okay, let's do it. You know, so, I mean, my God, you know, you can't get better than that as an artist. You, you can't have a better opportunities. And yeah. that was kind of how I began in, in this business. So I was very, very fortunate to begin that way. Yeah. Wow. But talk yeah. about fear factor. I want something <laughs> you've never seen before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? How exciting. Amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The last question is really random. This is this is me. I've I've actually never seen Cirque du Soleil like a full length performance live, which is crazy because I'm totally fascinated by it. <laughs> Maybe partly because I haven't seen it, and so I'm just really curious. The fact that you've worked on Cirque du Soleil is awesome, 
And it's just a whole nother level with the acrobatics and really dangerous aerials, I would guess, and huge set pieces from what I've seen, you know, in videos and things. How does that kind of come together? And maybe tell us about what types of people are involved, if there's a team of choreographers and how they work with the people who are doing the acrobatic component and about your role in bringing that show to life. Well, my role was to write and direct the show, and Mm -hmm. I co-choreographed it. But because I was writing and directing it, I brought in a woman who, her name is Bonnie Story, and she's done a lot of things now as a choreographer. She's won Emmys. She did High School Musical. Mm -hmm. She's done so many things. But she had been my assistant choreographer for many years and also had, you know, danced all the way back uh, as far as Smooth Criminal. Uh, She was in Smooth Criminal. But when you work on a Cirque show, the way it was, was that the director is the writer and the conceptor of the piece. So that's what I did. And you have a team around you of acrobatic choreographers or coaches, actually, acrobatic coaches in all the different mediums, all the different genres, whether it's Roussier, which is the big circle, or whether it's trapeze or high wire. Uh, so you have coaches that are trained in that, who, who work with the acrobats. And then what Bonnie would do is she would then take work with them and put that kind of uh, athleticism to rhythms and music. Mm. I would create the concepts of what I wanted. Oh. And this was about Elvis Presley. So Again, I went back to story and it, it was a little bit unfortunate because Cirque kept telling, the people kept telling me, oh, we, we love story. We want story. We want story. So I went for story. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't literal story, but I'll give you an example. Elvis was born, he was a twin actually, and his twin died at birth. I never knew this, but hmm. I decided to do a piece that was a parkour piece in a guitar that was the skeleton of a guitar It was 60 feet long and 35 feet high, and it was up about 20 feet in the air. And I had these two guys dressed in just jeans and white T-shirts, and they started kind of wrapped around each other in the little center hole of the guitar. And then they kind of come to life, and they start playing and chasing each other and doing this parkour work all over this huge guitar that's up in the the skeleton of this guitar up in the sky. As they do, one of the acrobats starts slipping every once in a while and the other acrobat helps him until at the end of the piece, the one acrobat goes to take a jump and just doesn't catch and drops off into infinity and you don't, you never see that acrobat again. Hmm. And the one who's left is obviously Elvis and he straddles the neck of the guitar and then goes off and the guitar gets carried off into the wings. But this to me told a story of Elvis Presley rather than just having a guitar in the air and and a guy on it doing acrobatics, you know. They didn't really, they didn't really like the idea of the stories that much in the end. And they wound up taking a lot of that away, but that's what I went for. I I went for story all the way through and I had a great time. I really did. I loved working with the acrobats. It was a very enlightening experience. I did a little bit of choreography with them, but just the whole concept of working in another physical genre other than dance was so, so interesting and fascinating. So getting to combine my back to my acting elements with acrobatics and movement 
and singing. I brought singing into it. It was a very, very all-encompassing show. And it did really well. It ran for 1,000 performances or something. But mm. I think that it stopped because the space that it was in, the theater that it was in, was really badly designed. The proscenium arch was something like 103 feet across. Mm. And so everything looked, every single person on that stage looked like they were an ant you know, mm. and you could never then feel from the audience that you were intimately involved with everything. And even if stuff was really frighteningly dangerous, it didn't seem that dangerous because everybody was so far away and mm. so small that it took on a different feeling. The Cirque projects that are in the tents when you're really close to the performers, I think those are the most exciting, honestly. This one was in Las Vegas in a big theater. And then eventually what happened was they closed the theater and they tried to put a couple other Cirque things in there, but they didn't work either for the same reason. And now the place is a convention center. It's not even a theater at all. Mm. So that kind of proved my point that yeah, I kept yeah. saying it's the theater. The theater needs to be a little smaller. We need it needs to be a little more intimate, you know, Definitely. Uh, but, but it was a very exciting opportunity and show I thought. And Cirque, Yes, a lot of their shows are the same, but if you've never seen one, they're really worth seeing, uh, yeah. especially the tent shows. The tent shows are phenomenal, you know, mm -hmm. and they really do transport you back to another time and another world. And, you know, it's you feel a little magical when you're inside there. It's it's, it's very special, very special. Is that like they set up their own tent? Like a. Yeah. Of, OK. I'll, I'll yeah, they have those. their own tents. Wow. Yeah, blue and gold tents, yeah. What a cool so. experience. <laughs> it was, it was. You know, that's the cool thing about my life has been, you know, I I grew up in outside of Philadelphia, down by the Delaware River in a really, really, really poor section. And, I mean, I think there were only maybe like a handful of people from a big graduating class of maybe 250 in high school that went on to college most people just stayed there it was a lot of oil refineries pizza shops car mechanic shops mm. funeral homes shopping malls and very few people actually left there everyone sort of stayed and i was one of the few people that got out and i had no idea this is what was going to happen to me i i really didn't every so every every new experience that comes into my life i'm so grateful for and i just keep thinking just keep your heart open, keep your mind open and keep yourself free and available to see what's going to come to you so that as much as you put out, stuff comes in. Mm -hmm. And one other thing I'll say, is this fun little exercise that I do, whenever I've wanted to work with somebody, I take their picture and I put it on my refrigerator because my refrigerator is like right where I have to walk throughout my house. The kitchen goes into the dining room, into the living room area. So I put that person's face on the refrigerator. And every time I go by, whether I actually look at it or I say something to that character, that person, whether it's Michael Jackson or Glenn Close, I think just by putting them there and seeing them that somehow psychically I'm connecting with them on some level so that if they're sitting around and they're thinking, oh, I have this project, I wonder who I should get to be involved with to do it. I think, okay, my name's going to come up into their head because <laughs> I put it out there psychically, you know, and I have to tell you, 
everybody so far that I have put on my refrigerator, including a picture of Elvis Presley. Now, remember, Elvis Presley was dead. But mm -hmm. even a picture of Elvis Presley was on my refrigerator. And then I wound up doing this Cirque show about Elvis Presley. Oh, wow. The only person... The only person so far who's been on my refrigerator for about a year who I've not done something with, who's in the pop world that I would love to still do something with is Gaga. Oh, she's next. So, <laughs> you know, I'm keeping her picture up there mm -hmm. and I'm hoping that something will happen. I think that I really think that we could create something very special together. So I'm psychically putting it out there that at some point she'll connect with me. Oh, that's so. great. Absolutely. Can we help with a call to action? Ask our <laughs> listeners to call Lady Gaga and sign petitions. <laughs> we'll do it. Uh, I don't know how it happens. I don't know how people think of people to put into projects, but that's the way I work, you know. I mean mm -hmm. I just I I don't know. It's always worked for me and I just kind of think when the time is right, if it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. You know. Definitely. Wow. I'm going to do that in my refrigerator, print out a couple pictures. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> it can't hurt. <laughs> can't hurt. Mm -mm. No. Wow. What phenomenal stories and memories and what a great way to end by saying keep your heart open and see what comes in. And I have found the same in my life. Whenever I do things maybe that I'm hesitant to, but I just open myself up to the experience, I always get some karmic return somehow. It's true, Jessica. It's really true. And especially if your intention is good, you know, if it's not just self-serving, but it can be a little self-serving because, you know, it's something, <laughs> but it's something that we want for ourselves and our own happiness or knowledge or edification or growth or something. But if it's, if it's done with, with a pure heart and good intention, I think that there's pretty likely percentage that it will come your way. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. This has been truly fascinating, and I really can't wait to put this out for our listeners. Oh, thank you both, ladies. I really appreciate you being interested in what I do and interested in talking to me, and it makes me feel really good and puts, as you can see, a big smile on my face. So um, <laughs> yeah. thank you, both Jessica and Clara, for taking the time to spend this time with me. Great. Thank you.